Good morning to everyone and welcome to uh, Concordia Seminary and to the annual lecture in Hispanic Latino Theology and Missions. Uh, many of you already know me. Uh, my name is Leopoldo Sanchez and I teach here at the seminary in the Department of Systematic Theology. And I'm also director of the Center for Hispanic Studies, uh, which is sponsoring this lecture. The mission of the Center for Hispanic Studies is to promote and implement theological education in the Lutheran tradition from and for Hispanic Latino contexts, especially in the United States. Now, the purpose of the lecture is to raise awareness and educate the seminary community and the general public on issues that affect Latino communities and on the contributions of Latinos and others to the shape of the church's task in such contexts. Last year, our theme was the human face of immigration. This year, our theme is identity and borderlands. Hispanics in the United States are often seen as a borderlands community. People at the margins of church and society. What does it mean to be a borderlands community? How does a borderlands social location affect Latino identity and other perceptions of Latinas and Latinos. Without romanticizing the poor or using them as a means to an end, can we ask what contributions do borderlands peoples bring to church and society? How might our solidarity with borderlands communities actually shape our own identity as humans in general, and as people of God in particular. Our guest speaker for this morning is Dr. Jamil A. Martinez Vasquez. He's a Puerto Rican native, an assistant professor at Texas Christian University. Although Dr. Martinez is not a stranger to the theological world, he does not claim to be a theologian. He comes to us as a social historian, and as such, enters then into dialogue with theologians. He has published articles on post-colonialism, specifically post-colonizing criticism, and Latina and Latino religions in various anthologies. He is now working also on a book about Latina, Latino Muslims in the United States. So we look forward to the publication of that. Please help me welcome Dr. Jamil Martinez to our campus. Uh, thank you very much for that generous uh, uh, presentation. Uh, let me say first thank you for the invitation to Leopoldo and to the center. Uh, it's, been, it's good to be back here. I was here uh, in the school about five years ago uh, talking actually about post-colonizing theory and biblical studies. Uh, so it's good to be here in St. Louis. The weather is great. 
Uh, it was storming in Texas yesterday, so a lot of the people that came out of Texas last night couldn't get out of Texas, so I'm glad I came out of Texas. Uh, for those of you who are Texans may understand that. Uh, this morning, I'm going to talk a little bit on the title of the presentation is Being in the Middle, Justice Across Borders. Uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what the concept of justice is in the issues of ministries in the borderlands. And of course, as I will say later, the borderlands I do not conceive merely as a geographical experience, but as a social experience that uh, it is defined by a context and by the contact uh, of different communities. So, but the first thing that I want to establish is Whenever we start talking about justice and whenever we start talking about hope, we always, we always have this conception of a future, this conception of change. So when I start thinking about hope, when I start thinking about solidarity and justice, I think about what we in Latin America will be, will called in Spanish, un mundo otro, which is not otro mundo which is two different things. In Spanish, if you say otro mundo, you mean another world, okay? But when you say un mundo otro, you actually are transforming the sense that it is this same world, just different. So two different conceptions. Uh, and I believe in, in order for us to, to look at ministries, in order to, for us to look at the borderlands and at justice, we need to seek that other things uh, within this world. Uh, so the first thing I want to start talking about uh, this morning is about the end of this world. And when I use the term end, I do not use it as a finality, but I use it as means. Uh, the concept of end of the world, I'm not talking about eschatology at all. Uh, I don't think in those terms. I think about changing the end, the means of this world. And how do we define this today's society? In today's society, we have a conception, what I like to call museum education. And this is where Latinos, African Americans, Asian American, Native Americans uh, come into play. Uh, women, for that matter, also come into play here. And we have this conception of museum education that we need to know the other. So we go to a museum and we see this mass uh, and we see these paintings and it's all great. Ooh, what a great picture. Ooh, what a great mask. But we never understand what are the myths behind the mask. What are the communities behind the paintings? And in today's society, that's what we have in the discourse of ethnic communities. And I use the concept uh, ironically because ethnic community is every community, because every community has an ethnicity. Uh, but when we talk about minoritized communities, we always, talk, we always talked about them in museum education style. Ooh, there's the Latinos. Ooh, they are family-oriented. Ooh, so, and we have all these characteristics about them, whoever they are. 
We don't know who they are, but we have the characteristics. And they are in the news. They were in the news last night as President Bush was in Mexico talking about immigration issues and the border and stuff. So they're always on the news, but they are there. They're never here. They're always there in the painting, in El Burrito, in El Taco, Arroz con Habichuelas, uh, Pupusa, whatever we want to talk about. They're always there. And the characteristics of these people are food, culture, uh, dancing, happiness, tequila. Uh, so there's always this concept of the other that are never defined as people. We don't define this people as people. They're defined as characteristics. Uh, the other thing is that whenever we think about this end in this world, the end of this world, what are the means of this end of this world, we always forget to talk about the socioeconomic rela relationships of oppression. And we always fail to talk about them. Whenever we are we're talking about these people, we're talking about, oh, they're taking our jobs, oh, they're coming again, oh, they're crossing the border. But we never talk about the socioeconomic realities experienced by these people. We never talk about them because it's highly unlikely that most people in this country will actually even care about it. Because if you don't care about the person, why would you care about the concept of living of these people? So. That, those are the, the conditions that I want to establish that we need to change, that we need to transform. And why do I think there is a possibility of change? Why am I not uh, pessimistic? I, whenever I teach, I teach undergraduate students. I don't teach graduate students. So I teach undergraduate students. And whenever we start talking about poverty and social issues, they have to create an uh, assignment. So they divide it into groups, and they're going to represent different groups that are going to the UN. We're not going to the UN, but they are going to the UN. Uh, and they have to have a five-step plan to get rid of poverty. It's interesting, at the end of the exercise, interesting ideas, by the way, but at the end of the exercise, I asked the question, so who, whenever you started uh, doing this project, who thought that it was possible that this could happen? Well, sadly enough, 99% of my classrooms most times do not believe that it is possible to change the transformate or transform society for that matter. And it is really depressing. I get out of those classes like all depressed. And I'm like, ooh, the world is going to end soon. Uh, and, in, and in that sense, I do not subscribe to the impossibility of change, but to the possibility of change. So. As you bear with me this morning, you're going to see that there is a lot of hope within every, it's intermingled with every word that I say because I believe in the possibility of change but for two principled uh, conditions. The conditions of conscientización, which I won't try to pronounce in English because I never do justice to the term in English because it's not a term in English, uh, and the concept of mutuality. The concept of conscientización, uh, which it was coined by uh, educa liberation educator Paulo Freire in Brazil, means that there is the process of getting to know yourself in light of your condition, in light of your reality. Okay? And then the second process 
that gives me hope and that, that I use as the possibility of change is the concept of mutuality, which is the concept that you become one with the other. The concept of mutuality was coined by missiologists in the late 80s and early 90s trying to break free from colonial ways of doing mission. Uh, so they coined the term mutuality to explain that there is always something to give. That the persons who you are in ministry with, not to, ministry with, are also individuals who can reciprocate ministry to you. Okay? So the concept of mutuality is interesting. The concept of conscientization, to talk a little bit about those two, the concept of conscientization comes up when we realize that individuals, individuals look at themselves and look at the other in light of what are their relationships among them and what are their relationships with their surroundings. Once you achieve conscientization, you achieve self-description. Okay? In the process of museum education, in the process of today's society, the other is defined. We are defined as Latinos. We are defined as something. Okay? In the process of conscientization, you break free from those self-imposed or imposed definition in order to self-define yourself. Not as a stuck reality, but as a fluid reality. We understand in the process of conscientization that there is not set of rules. But it's always a fluid society, just like culture is always fluid. There's no such thing as one culture, or one thing, as one definition. So it's always fluid. And this brings the concept of mutuality because it is only when you realize who you are and you define yourself that you can present yourself as yourself to the other. And in that sense, it established a relationship among equals. Okay? So in that understanding, I want to go and, and do two things before starting to do, deal with the ministry aspect in the borderlands. I'm going to define the two major concepts. The first one is justice, and the second one is going to be I'm going to define the borderlands, or at least try. Uh, justice. Oh, what can I say? It is that women holding the balance of power. Uh, justice. It is what we seek in judicial system, I guess. Uh, justice. It is whenever we talk about we are equal. You see? The, the discourses of justice are so, so superficial. They never deal with what actually justice is. Uh, justice is never achieved unless there is peace. It's never achieved unless there is hope. And it's never achieved unless there are equality. But what type of equality? Are we all the same? Do we think alike? Do we live in the same communities? Do we understand ourselves the same way? Do we understand God the same way? You see, this concept of equality, this concept of justice based on equality, is a mere facade out of how of the particular concept in this country that we use, can we all just get along? 
and it is the whole issue of equality, really fails to grasp the whole issue of justice. Whenever we talk about justice, we have to take it into consideration that it is a social component. That when we talk about justice, we have to talk about socioeconomic realities. Then when we talk about justice, we have to talk about legal equalities. It is, it is the concept of justice that we fail to grasp in, out of the churches, in and out of societies, in and out of judicial system. We never grasp the concept of justice fully. We always want one thing and one thing only. And the concept of justice in this society has been reduced to retribution. Uh, and, and, and I think it's a, a mistake to understand that understanding of justice while not understanding the other aspects of justice within today's society. For example, the religious understanding of the term justice, it's based, or should be based for that matter, uh, in the fullness of God. Okay, The whole concept of equality means that every individual has the fullness of God embedded with her, within her, or him. Okay? Because if we do not see the concept of justice ingrained within the concept of fullness of God, then we actually are saying that God created differently. And as far as I understand of my Bible days when I was in seminary, I truly remember that God just created. So, in that understanding, when we have to grasp the whole concept of fullness of God in order to see that the other, that which is that, that or who is not me, is also, is also capable of the fullness of God. Okay? And the second thing in the whole concept of justice that liberation theologians from Latin America and within this country or other countries for that matter, have put forth, is that the whole concept of justice, when we look at Jesus, is actually embedded within the phrase, the preferential option for the poor. And that is actually related to the socioeconomic realities of the other. The other is always poor. So in that understanding, the whole concept of justice is grasped by understanding and by trying to uh, see God within the eyes of the poor. And of course, how do we address that? Well, if we go to the Bible and we go to Matthew 26 and we go to the judgment of nations, then we see clearly what Jesus understands of justice, what Jesus understands of a preferential option. Because you saw me naked and dressed me. You saw me uh, wandering around and you gave me uh, shelter. Because I was in prison and you visited me. Okay? In that understanding, Jesus is saying that there is a face of fullness of God. If we understand Jesus as God, as the incarnation of God, then we understand that Jesus has the fullness of God. And Jesus is telling us there that the whole concept of equality, the whole concept of humanity is based on the fullness of God. And that those have the fullness of God. The less. Okay? 
So once we understand justice in this holistic approach, that is not just retribution, that is not just pay for something, that it is based upon the equality beyond a traditional understanding of legal rights, that it is based on the fullness of God, then we can move, we can move forward and try to understand the other as God, him or herself, and the presence of God in him or her. The second thing, and I'll put this all together, uh, but the second thing that I want to define is the term borderlands. We always talk about borderlands. Uh, Gloria Saldua, who passed away, who left, who left us two years ago too soon, uh, she defined the concept of a borderlands as the space where two people touch each other. She talks about the borderlands at those spaces where, like an open wound. She talks about the U.S.-Mexico border as an open wound that is always bleeding. But then she says that the concept of borderlands, she's not defining it itself just as a geographical uh, site, but it is a cultural site. For example, this place here is a borderland right now because there are people within the same space and there is bleeding always going around. I, the term borderlands comes from an Aztec Nahuatl a concept called Nepantla, which is the, na- the space in the middle. It is always the middle space. And how we created that connection of the borderlands is interesting. In the, as a historian, U.S. religious historian, uh, it is interesting if you understand the process protestization when uh, Latinos in the U.S.-Mexico or across the U.S.-Mexico border started turning Protestants, uh, it is interesting to understand what the mission boards did. Most mission boards of Protestant denomination will send people to Mexico. They didn't care for those people in the borderlands, in the southwestern part of the United States. And there are writings on it. There are bishops and missionaries saying, I am not interested being here. The people here stink. The people here are greasers. So I want to I go where the devil is. And they write it like that. The devil is in Mexico, of course, Catholics. They, they understood it like clearly that that's where they needed to go. So, and there are writings of it. Uh, and it is interesting because this is in the 1800s. This is not a long time ago. This is in the 1800s. So the southwestern part of the United States is already defined as less human than everything else. And when we understand the concept of the, of the borderlands in that light, then we have to understand the concept of oppression, understand the concept of suffering, understand the concept of poverty. Uh, if you go to the U.S.-Mexico border, which is, by the way, the most militarized border in the world. It is more militarized than any Middle Eastern border. There are more military, more military uh, engagement in the U.S.-Mexico border than any other than the Syrian and Iraq, for example, border. Uh, 
the U.S.-Mexico border on the Mexico side, of course, we have over, uh, I don't know the number as this year, but as of last year, over 400 maquiladoras, what you will call sweatshops. And it is interesting that the majority of the people who live in, who live around these areas will work in a maquiladora. Uh, and they will go to work every day. Some of these people are U.S. citizens, and they will cross the border into Mexico to work every morning. Uh, the majority of, of, uh, of workers in maquiladoras are women. Actually, 78% of maquiladoras workers are women from the ages of 15 to 28. Why 28? Well, usually uh, women, uh, as they will say, and there are, are, uh, we have uh, records of, of uh, higher-ranking officials in maquiladoras who were right like this, and I sort of quote, we don't need older women because they get pregnant. And when they get pregnant, they get lazy. Uh, so most of the women's are, you, of course, you don't have health insurance, uh, so forget about that. Uh, so most women are fired if they get pregnant. Uh, and most people are fired if you try to ask for something more. There are no particular justice, uh, worker justice compensation in this institution, in this uh, organizations. So we have to understand that this borderlands that we talk about is out of the system. It is not part of the system, although it's sustained the system because we get cheap clothes because of maquiladoras, uh, because we get cheap car uh, pieces of parts because of maquiladoras. So how do we then address something that is not really here because it's less human, of course? How do we address that? How do we, how do we understand those realities if it's not part of my reality? Well, I think the concept of borderlands then brings a different definition of it based on solidarity. And if you, for those of you who have been to border towns or border cities just all across, you will see that there is such a thing, understanding of community, that it is not the traditional understanding of community that we have in big cities, for example. It is an understanding of community based on we are here together. And it is not that we come together. You see, in the, in the whole concept of cities and uh, developed communities, we have the understanding that communities were when people come together. There is an understanding, and a lot of sociologists have worked on this, that in the, in the borderlands, not just in the U.S.-Mexico border, but, for example, in the, borderland, in the border of India and Pakistan, for example, have been... There is a concept of solidarity. There is a concept of community based on we are here together. We don't come together. We are here together. So the whole concept of solidarity then transformed, is transforming the understanding of this. But then there is also a second layer of this solidarity, is that while we are here together, 
we are really near to each other. We, this concept of getting near, of course, uh, in the traditional understanding of Latinos and Latinas in, the, in these countries, we always talk about hugging and everybody. And I, when I moved to this country, that was the main issue. I had to shake the hand of everybody like a mile away because then I was infringing in safe spaces. Uh, in our communities, space is nothing. Uh, we don't have spaces. We don't, we don't follow those particular guidelines. But in the borderlands, it's even, it's even closer. It is that getting near. It is that bleeding with somebody else. And if we define thus, then when we define the borderlands, not just as, your, as a geographical uh, space, but as a space where two people meet, uh, where two people interact with each other, then we have to understand that there is also uh, a space between those individuals. But in the borderland, the space between, it shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. Which then leads me to the whole concept of moving from justice to borderlands to how do we work then? If we understand this, that there is the issues of oppression, that there is an issues of poverty, that there is an issues of racism, for example, that there is an issues of uh, gender inequality, then how do we address those issues? What is then ministry? What does that mean in light of these realities? In light of the concept of justice that Jesus, inequality that Jesus put forth? Well, the first thing is that uh, I, was, I was talking uh, with a friend of mine the other day, and we all, and we were talking about this concept of ethnic communities. Silly. Uh, what is an ethnic community? And we all, and we were just talking about how we put everybody, lump everybody together. The same way people use the term Hispanic to refer to all Latinos and Latinas in this country, like if we were all alike. Well, I'm sorry to tell you this today. Not only we are not all alike, not necessarily we like each other that much all the time. Just to let you know. That's a secret. Don't tell anybody. Uh, so whenever you talk about Hispanics, know that it's not as simple as just to use that term that the Bureau of Census uses to lump us. But there is always that. I always, I'm, in, I'm in Texas. I'm not from Mexico. I never lived in Mexico. Uh, I don't speak Mexican, as some people would say. Uh, I was told the other day, somebody heard me speak in Spanish, say, oh, that's not Mexican, what is that? And I am, oh, well, it is Spanish. I say, but are Mexicans speaking Spanish too? Yeah. So uh, that's my barber. What can I do with him? Anyway, so I was, I, I was looking around, and I, was, and I am in Texas, and usually my students come to me, all mostly white students come to me after the first week of class and they're really excited that I can actually speak English. Uh, and they tell me about it. It's a racist attitude, but you know what can I do? It's teenagers. 
Uh, so for the most part, I, I usually just say, I can actually write it too. So, but then they start asking me, so where is a good Mexican restaurant? And I say, well, if I were Mexican, I would tell you, but I am not. But if you don't see Mexicans in the restaurant, it's not good. And the whole concept of what I'm trying to do is for you to stay awake with me here. And the second thing that I want to do is that we, we use the concept of homogenización, which I will not try to pronounce it in English because I cannot pronounce it for the love of God. It's like a hegemony, which is so hard to pronounce. Uh, but when we talk about homogenización, we talk about putting everybody like one thing. And what that does is that erases difference. We call that in this country assimilation. And of course, whoever thought that assimilation was set and done, you did not listen to the president of this country in his state of the union address where he used the concept of assimilation and where he used the concept of the melting pot. So, in order to do ministry in the borderlands, you have to throw that stuff out the window. It doesn't work. The concept of melting pot presupposes that there is somebody who is going to control what goes into the pot. Who likes to cook here? I do. So if you have a pot, you, the chef, decides what goes into the pot. You decide how much stirring is going to go. You decide what stuff are going to be big and what stuff you can deal without so that you couldn't really small it. So the, the concept of a melting pot presupposes that there is somebody doing the melting and somebody in charge of the pot. So the concept of a melting pot is not equality, it's not, ooh, can we all just get along? It's a concept of unicity. We are becoming one thing and one thing only. But by becoming one, we're living away who we are. We're becoming something else. So the whole concept of ministry in the borderlands have to be established into the opens, openness to difference. Second thing, the, the concept of ministry in the borderlands has to start with the walking with the other. Okay? For the most part, we in Christian churches, we always talk about revelations. Who like revelations? Not the book of revelation, just a revelation. Who likes a revelation? Who likes to have a revelation every now and then? I like it. I like when I have a revelation. And we always, most of us and most Christians will look into a church in order to have that moment, that moment with God. And we seek it. But do we take time to enjoy the process of it. Okay? Most of the time, we look at the whole concept of the cross and Christ's suffering as the ultimate thing. But we never pay attention to the process of getting to the cross. The process always fails to be in our head because we're, we like to get to the end. If you want an example of it, uh, in the Every Child Left Behind law, well, no, no, no child left behind law in this country, there is a process of acquiring knowledge. 
we acquire one thing, and that's what it is there, is A, B, C, or D. There is no thinking about this. It is always there. The answer is always there. But in the, in the concept of understanding a ministry, we have to live a way that maybe there is no A, B, C, D, or E, or F, and that the process in itself, by walking with the other, will take you there. And it is interesting because whenever in liberation theology in Latin America, it is talked about how Jesus walks with you. Not how Jesus got there, but it's always how Jesus walks with you. And in that sense, the the walking with the other has to follow that Jesus as a model. That Jesus was not, he didn't care too much about the outcomes of things. He talked to somebody on a Sabbath, not just somebody. He talked to a woman, not just a woman. He talked to a woman he couldn't talk. So he didn't care about the outcomes of the actions. He cared about the concept of praxis. And praxis is the action that leads to something, but whatever it leads to, you're not that interested. You are more interested in the action in itself. And it is in that process where revelation actually happens. Do you read the Bible so you can get a revelation? Or do you read the Bible and then revelation happens? It is that same concept. When I was growing up, I remember a lot of uh, uh, friends of my mom will, will open their Bibles and say, Ooh, I'm open the Bible and God will speak me right as I open the Bible. Because people believe in revelation. That the revelation will happen. Uh, I'm more, I, I believe that in the ministry of the borderlands and the ministry with the borderlands, revelation does happen, but not as we seek it, but as we work for it. Two different things. And then the, the last thing I want to say about the ministry for the borderlands and with the borderlands is that this is not... Uh, speaking of God ministry. It is a living with God ministry. If we do not transform the socioeconomic realities, revelation will not happen as we want it to happen and justice will not happen. Because for the most part, missions in the... 60s, 70s, and even in the beginning of the 80s, it was, oh, I'm going to go there and preach the word of the Lord. People will convert, and people will be happy. They will still be poor, but they will be happy poor. You see, the concept of justice, as I explained it, will cannot see that happening because we are holistic individuals. We do not... We do not understand God outside of our reality. Nobody does. We only understand God in light of our reality.
So in that, in that issue, a ministry to, with, and from the borderlands has to be a ministry that takes into consideration the socioeconomic reality of the poor. And to finish, I start with a little bit of hope, and I will end with a little bit more. In the Bible, it talks about cielo nuevo y tierra nueva. Everybody know what that is? A new heaven and a new earth. Uh, and I always like that, that phrase because as I have, I talk to a lot of people in different countries as I travel, a lot of people always seek to actually see heaven, but not to see heaven, just to see the sky. Some people can never see the sky. It's, it's never attainable to see the blue out there. It's always so gray. It's always so dark. Not just physically, but emotionally. So some people really just want to see the blue in the sky. So as I, as, I, as I finish today's presentation, and I don't write my presentations, only sometimes when I know I, I just have a set amount of time or something, but I am the son of a preacher, so my mom always never wrote anything, so I learned from her. And, but as I finish my presentation, three things I want to establish in order for us to understand what it is to be in the middle, what it is to do, to do justice across border. The first one is we have to be one with the other. When Jesus went to the woman in the well, did I pronounce that word? Well, not well, no whale, but well. Uh, my students always make fun of me of those terms that are the same thing in English, but what can I say? So he didn't see difference. Whenever she said something, he pretty much said, so what? When Jesus went to the leopards, he didn't see anything else. They, pro they probably were like, what are you doing, man? What's up with you? You're breaking the rules. Well, Jesus didn't mind breaking the rules. In the understanding of humanity, then we have to be one with the other. We have to understand that being one with the other is being one with God. Okay, the second thing is that we have to live out a continuous hope. There, is, there has to be this conception that moves us beyond the tomorrow that we always live in the past. We like to live in the past or dwell in the past for that matter. There has to be always something of hope, but not hope in like, oh, when I'm going to die, I'm going to be in heaven. No, no, no. What's going to happen today that is going to make this a kingdom of God? And when I say kingdom, I do not use the G. I use kingdom. Okay? I do not use the male chauvinistic understanding of kingdom when I speak. It is an issue of filio, 
relationship among individuals, not just a man dominating. And then the, this concept of hope is a resistance to death. Nothing more, nothing death, nothing less. You resist to die. And then the, the, the last thing is that everybody fits. Everybody fits in the world. If we don't understand that everybody fits, we'll be reproducing the system of inequalities, the systems of oppression. And as far as I can understand, I don't think that is the system that will bring us the kingdom of God here on earth today. Not tomorrow, today. Wake up every morning. Think about why do you wake up every morning? Why do you get out of bed? If you don't think things are going to get better, then stay in bed. Watch TV all day. But think about your ministry in light of today. Not in light of tomorrow, but in light of today and the reality of today. Because some people, they cannot afford tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Martinez, for a, shall we say, challenging uh, discussion. Um, I think to perhaps put in a bit of a, a ministerial context some of the discussion that Dr. Jamil has been uh, presenting to us, uh, it would be good to hear from uh, people from our community, people who work in the Lutheran Church and work in the U.S.-Mexico border, to hear about their experiences. Um, if, in fact, what Dr. Martinez is saying, that, that God might be able to teach us something uh, in the midst of the borderlands, what might that, might, might that be? Let's hear from um, colleagues who have been working in the border uh, to see what God has taught them. I'd like to introduce to you uh, Reverend Steve Morfitt, uh, who is a 1982 graduate of this seminary. He's been a pastor for 25 years in El Calvario Lutheran Church in Brownsville, Texas. Has been a circuit counselor in the Texas district. Uh, has also been, and still is, director of the Hispanic Missions Training Center in southern Texas. He also um, is a member of the Frontera Study Group, which considers border strategies for missions. Um, and he's also a recent member of the uh, Hispanic Ministry Education Center, HMAC, Board of Directors in the Rocky Mountain District. I'd also like to introduce you to uh, Mrs. Melissa Salomon, who is the director of the Lutheran Hour Ministries, the Mexico office located in Tijuana. Uh, one of their uh, projects, well, the major focus for them is really outreach and mission support and training along the border region. And one of their most recent programs is working with the government uh, social welfare agency in a program for street children in Tijuana. She's a graduate of Occidental College and Loyola Law School, as well as a graduate of leadership programs with the Coro Foundation and Maldef. 
Uh, in her professional career, she has served as law clerk in both Superior Court and U.S. Court of Appeals and also worked with the U.S. Department of Justice as well as in private practice. As a Mexican-American, uh, she is a product of two cultures and is personally committed to serving as a bridge between these cultures within the uh, LCMS. She's also a co-founder of the Heart to Heart Sisters program, which seeks to provide opportunities for service and leadership to non-Anglo ethnic women of the LCMS for the benefit of ministry within the church at large. So please help me welcome uh, first uh, Reverend Steve Morfitt and then also uh, Mrs. Melissa Salomon. Thank you, Professor Martinez, for a very insightful and challenging presentation. I guess the last time I was here, some 25 years ago, I think I was up here administering individual absolution to students at this seminary. When I think of justice, that's probably the first context that most of you would think about as well, divine justice. I spent a lot of time at this place talking about the second article. It's what I certainly left here with, that the greatest eyes above would be the one that we had to consider first and foremost, that justice, divine justice, how we would stand before God, and certainly leaving then with a profound sense of the significance of Article 2 of the Apostles' Creed, justification, that justice, before the divine tribunal. But then I left here and I got to South Texas on the border and I've been there 25 years in the same parish and looking both north and south for that period of time. And Professor Martinez's presentation I think offers keen insight into probably what's not uh, necessarily to be staples of the seminary formation but certainly issues that have to be dealt with some way in continuing education process. It has to be made available for us. To think about these things as he describes them and, and uses significant terminology, I'm going to hit on just a couple. I have just a few moments here to speak to you, but, but one that struck me especially as he spoke this morning is about the fullness of God. I think I went down to South Texas, certainly understanding the office and a call to the office of the ministry. And I think with some appreciation for the universal priesthood of believers, but somehow lacking, I think, the fullness of uh, appreciation, to repeat the word, to find the fullness of God among the people of God. And certainly finding them to be colleagues and co-equals in the work of the kingdom. And certainly through the years I've come to appreciate that more and more. Of thinking that, as C.S. Lewis would say, if we could see these people as they are before God, we would be tempted to bow down and worship them. So full of the glory of God they are. And indeed, that is the case. I think that's the one thing that's kept me there. The call and the people that you're called to 
and thinking, really, these are part of the glorious redemptive work of Jesus Christ, and I have the great privilege to work with them. That does take some refocus of your vision and perceptions. And I think that's something else that uh, Professor Martinez struck at powerfully. Because there are masks, and of course I went down assuming that I could look right behind the masks, and you don't get behind the masks very quickly. And of course they postured for me, and I thought I was trying to penetrate deeply into the culture and found that that was way beyond my depth. But over time in the community of God, there is self-disclosure going on, and, and one rejoices in whatever form that takes. There is then, as he said, ministry with. Ministry with the wonderful people of God we're called to serve. And exploring how that God has gifted his people in spite of socioeconomic realities which are so oppressive. Here's where I depart from Dr. Martinez's presentation. I see endless telus for us. And that is part of the theology of the cross, which I see things before me which are by no means not even the half of the reality that exists there before me. When we come into worship and I see the brokenness and the pain and the desire to see blue skies, as he indicated, to see a blue heaven, I do know that by faith those people are already beholding glories hidden with me that one day will be fully manifest. God's preferential option for the poor is something I've thought about a great deal in 25 years along the border. And certainly thinking about what Dr. Martinez said as well, as Jesus Christ is one who walks with his people in ministry. And seeing that he was the man of sorrows and certainly being so much of his ministry in a place like Galilee, it does make one think about where we do ministry and how we do ministry and, and who we should do ministry to and with. And he mentioned Matthew 25, and that's one that certainly I think should give us pause about if we're somehow indicating to one another that we really are a ministry primarily directed toward the privilege, even if it may be a modest sense of privilege in the middle class or upper middle class as we would consider ourselves in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. But again, I would just, I think... Uh, think about some of the things he suggested as, as points where we do need to be in constant dialogue with the sociologists, the social ethicists, the historians, who reflect on, on profound aspects of the interrelation of church and culture and history, and also to find ourselves trying to, as, as he indicated as well, that Jesus is the contemporaneous Christ with the church. I think as dogmatic, systematic church member, members of a church body very much interested in those things, and rightfully so, I think there's sometimes we struggle to think about what it is to know Jesus, the great contemporary, and then how he meets us in, in the confrontation, the constant uh, dialogue where, where there is nearness and yet not homogeneity, where there is a, a sense of certainly co-laboring for the kingdom and I would see that as a kingdom present, also a kingdom manifest. And yet it's, he's with us here. He's with us even in the midst of all these struggles. He did say something finally then about 
Gloria Ansaldúa and her work on borderlands. And he quoted, I think, one of her her poems about uh, borderlands, where it is the place where you come together to bleed. And at the borderland, there's always bleeding. And certainly for those of us who are Lutherans, I think we understand that most profoundly in our understanding of sinner saint, justification, sanctification. That the old Adam has brought to us such, such woe, such suffering, such affliction, that even among those who find themselves so oppressed by social injustice or economic tribulation, we're never far away from them in the depths of our being. As the darkness of our own soul plagues us and causes us to struggle, whatever position in society, whatever circumstance we might find ourselves in socioeconomically, there is a struggle to see blue skies. There is a struggle to hope. There is a struggle to love and sacrifice. So understanding that the bleeding is going on is not a foreign concept to us as Lutherans. And I think we bring that certainly uniquely to ministry in the borderland. He finally made the comment about living with God and speaking about God. And for those of us who understand faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, that certainly is a challenge to be incarnational. To understand that living with God and speaking with God are really the nexus into wolves. They're inseparable in the Christian experience. We live and walk to God with God at the same time. We speak on his behalf, and we walk among his broken, suffering, afflicted people, those who've been redeemed by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have the higher privilege of doing that, then there is the sense that, that God is already enlightening our reality, empowering us to bring about the radical change that Professor Martinez spoke to, that begins even here and now, in the now and not yet, of the work of the kingdom. Thank you. Good morning. Um, I wish I could say that nine years of ministry on the border has given me some really nice conclusions about how borderlands people act and the ministry of the borderlands that I could give to you with a nice little pink bow on top. I wish I could. I'm going to disappoint you if that's what you expected. But I can give you a little glimpse into what um, God has allowed me to see and experience in the lives of people that I work with and walk with and love and serve. And my prayer is that God will give you insight into people, borderlands people who you will have contact with, who will be in the communities of the churches that you serve, who will be people, my prayer is, that you love and serve and engage. And, um, and I think that will probably be more likely than not. Even if you end up in a place in a placement in uh, places like um, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, or Denison, Iowa, or Grand Island, Nebraska. 
and that and count on my prayers uh, with you for that as you um, experience that in your ministry. I can share with you a little bit about what my experience is and can only speak of what my experience is, is in Tijuana, in that particular unique little piece of geography and what that might mean for you as you encounter people who have come through where I serve and end up where you will serve. Uh, I read recently, uh, 1915, Tijuana had a thousand inhabitants. Today, uh, between two and three thousand people come into Tijuana from the interior of Mexico every single day. And we're reaching numbers of about three million in Tijuana. It's the largest land border crossing in the world. Dr. Martinez has shared some other interesting things about what the border looks like, that border that is two, almost 2,000 miles long. How, what a significant piece of geography that is, but beyond that, more than that. Um, I appreciated Dr. Martinez's talking about the concept of here together on the border. I can share with you what I observe being on the border and observing both sides of the border and the culture of both sides. I have observed only where I am, I can't speak for any other part of this huge long border, even to talk about the border is a real diverse dialogue. But where I am, I don't observe that on the U.S. side there is much difference to living on the border. I see massive amounts of development creeping all the way down to the very border itself, and the McMansions reach all the way down south. Do people on the U.S. side live different lives because of where they are? You would think that maybe yes. It's been my observation that largely no. However, you go across the border, and what is that experience like? People have talked about the third culture. People have talked about people who are a product of two cultures, like I am, neither there or here. It's a th something different. The life on the border on the Mexican side is a totally different experience and culture. It is a third culture. I think even people from other Mexican cities, like, you know, not even Mexico City, but other northern cities even, are surprised that they don't even understand or identify with their own people. They're Mexican people, but the culture is so different. What is that like? Dr. Martinez talked a little bit about the stereotypes that we identify Latinos with, and, and we say they're very family-oriented. It's interesting to see how life on the border has had a real dramatic, significant, profound effect on this. Where I work in, in Tijuana, I, I don't see a culture of marriage ev even anymore. It's a culture of common law unions and rotating spouses. The consequence of this, um, alarming rates of sexual abuse. Um, when we encountered a school near what, right next door to one of our Lutheran missions, where there were three pregnant sixth graders, 
this disturbed me greatly, and I kept thinking, what, how are we going to respond to this? And maybe that's something that I can share with you and I, and that's kind of been my rule of thumb. How are we going to respond to it? That it is, it is. What are we going to do about it? That was the, the reason that we began a youth program as uh, a complement to the ministries that are there in, in Tijuana. Violence. Um, the government tells us that between seven, seven out of ten families experience violence in the home. Kind of breaks the whole little picture, the nice, neat little picture of family-oriented, family values. Drugs, of course, you've heard all about that. Uh, what does it mean, though, that a child has to walk to school just a few blocks away and cross maybe a half a dozen or maybe more um, kitchens where they, fa they manufacture crack cocaine. What does it mean um, that children can't go to school because they don't have a uniform or shoes? What does it mean in the lives of pastors working there in the border when the reality is that they will have a complete turnover in the people that come to their church in about a four-month period. How does that impact how we do what we do? In engaging, too, with um, groups of people that come from our churches all over the country to serve in Tijuana, I have been struck by the two overwhelming emotional characteristics, I'd say, that I have noticed um, from our church at large, and that's it's mostly guilt and fear. Um, an, a desire to serve, and yet um, how do we define that or understand that without, again, like Dr. Martinez noted, with that other mentality. It's there one of the questions I most often am asked is, how can I send my used clothes to you so that you can give it to the poor people? Thankfully, I've had a very diplomatic response. I've said, now, you know what? The government prohibits us from entering the country with used clothing. It must be health reasons or something. That's been an easy out. But I think sometimes we in the church have lacked a real... Um, also, as people of faith and people who want to understand the correct Christian response as followers of Christ. Still, our churches need a whole lot of uh, information, especially in the area of, of a framework, a scriptural, biblical framework, to understand many social issues. And the whole, the, the whole dynamic of immigration, um, of poverty, um, we understand a lot of the civic issues, the economic issues, maybe even some of the social issues, but we lack input and information as to how we are to understand this in the Christian framework. I thought it was interesting and, and a privilege for me to serve with the um, Frontera group and the work of the Blue Ribbon Task Force on Hispanic Ministry, and especially as we gathered as a, a summit of leaders. Um, I was really struck by the fact that the whole issue of immigration was one that 
seemed to be of such paramount importance that it filtered everything else and, and how little we really had a handle on it. One of the things that the whole task force and the summit and all the leadership said and recommend, recommended was, and it's going forward to the Synodical Convention this summer, that we need as a church to really understand and provide that framework so that we can share it as workers with our churches and our people. We've asked the CTCR to prepare an in-depth look at what does it mean, how are we going to look at the foreigner in our midst and the immigration issues and the borderlands issues. Why should we even care? Not only um, are we practicing for that time in heaven when we're going to be all nations and tribes and people and language. Um, but we don't even understand how to deal with our neighbor, our neighbor to the south. It's, it's funny in, in the San Diego area, um, there's a lot of fluidity. Uh, we understand that. We see that even in the United States modernly. But I don't think anybody has a true appreciation of the um, tremendous superfluidity that exists along the immediate border. I'm not sure about the rest of it. I suspect it's the same there also, but in Tijuana, it's an amazing fluidity. Um, and people uh, travel across the border, and their vehicles have their Mexican license plates that say BC, you know, Baja California. And uh, it just boggles my mind when I when so often is the comment from people living on the U.S. side of the border um, and visitors, but even people that are, are amazed that um, why are all these cars here from British Columbia? Our first level of knowledge is always toward the north and not to the south, even though we, we live together on the border. I very much appreciated doctors, Dr. Martinez's comments about walking together, walking together, engaging people that are borderland people wherever they are found, and they're found with increasing numbers throughout the United States. But beyond the, also the concept of everybody fitting, um, I think even beyond that, one of the things that I have most found uh, working on the border is that not only does everybody fit, but everybody has tremendous treasure. Everybody has immeasurable worth. And I think once we begin to discover that and recognize it, um, we tend to always get stuck in the material, in the physical part of our human nature, and can often not look beyond it. But once we walk together with people in really see their worth and their treasure and the gifts that they are, it totally transforms our way of thinking, our way of, um, it becomes then an issue of identifying with people that you work with, people that you truly love and serve, and probably can't even love and serve rightly without that identification, without that valuing, without recognizing the, the beautiful things that another culture um, experiences and can share. 
one of the things that has really touched me is a recognition of a, a different way of, of recognizing God in, in the lives of, of people who live on the borderlands. A tremendous dependence on God, a hopefulness that you would say, what do they have to be hopeful for? <laughs> um, but uh, the one moment that really um, impacted my life and my heart was being at a New Year's Day service in one of our missions, probably in one of the ro most remote areas where home is uh, four gara wooden garage doors and a tarp and a dirt floor. Uh, but listening to people, person individual after individual, um, want to have the opportunity to publicly thank God for the blessings that he's given truly is a, an amazing, was an amazing thing for me to hear a woman saying, well, I'm so grateful to God because he hasn't let us go hungry this year, and he gave us heaven. Now, there's a way, too, that people from another culture and another life experience have of distilling life issues. Um, I know that uh, your service, wherever you are, and uh, will be enriched if you engage and love and serve the people that are in your communities. And I don't think it's an accident that they're there. Thank you. Okay, I think I'll ask our speakers to please come, come back up. And uh, well, we want to thank you very much for coming. We know that you've made some space in your time to be here, uh, and I hope that this was an enriching experience for, uh, for all of you. Excellent presentations, excellent questions. Uh, may God bless you, and thanks again for being here, and let's thank all of our presenters once more.